A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace the chaos! And from its ashes, a new world shall rise to victory, white man! I'm Michelle Shepard, and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White Hot Hate, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. The tragic end to that deep-sea dive to the wreckage of the Titanic. Many people in the community were very concerned about this sub. The descent is the most dangerous part for a submersible. You know, I've broken some rules to make this. There's just no oversight. Reckoning the infinite risks of a dive to the Titanic. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, the personal crusade of Karen Berg. You have to tolerate people being different than you are. A state lawmaker on her battle to stop anti-trans legislation. Return of the Bear. It's such a release, I think, in the way that people enjoy horror movies. What the show gets right about backstage restaurant culture. And summer books. Bear with me. It's even great at the beginning. Becky shares her picks for summer reading pleasure. All today on Day 6, the Beach and Bifocals edition. Well, uh, a whiplash of emotions for me over this past four days or so. First of all, uh, my heart goes out to the five souls that we now know were lost. And so, fortunately, if there is any fortune to this, it was over quick. It was a fast, um, it was fast. That's Joe McInnes. He's a doctor, explorer, and leadership expert. And like many of us, he's been glued to the news this week, waiting to learn the fate of the five people aboard the Titan submersible. The vessel set out last Sunday for a 4,000-meter dive to view the wreckage of the Titanic. It lost contact with the surface soon after. It now appears the vessel imploded, killing everyone on board. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Joe McInnes has made multiple dives to the wreck of the Titanic. The first time was in 1987, alongside Paul-Henri Nargelet, the former French Navy commander who was on board the Titan this week. Joe McInnes is a Canadian doctor, explorer, and leadership expert. Joe, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Nice to be here. The first dive that you ever made to the site of the shipwreck of the Titanic was in 1987, alongside Paul-Henri Nargelet, the former French Navy commander who perished in this incident. How are you remembering him today? Well, uh, my heart is broken, to be honest, because uh, PH was a dear friend for, for 30 years or more. But my sense is that PH was a romantic. You know, he, he had a, a soul. He was an extraordinary leader, the best human being to be at your shoulder if something was unfolding. But he had the soul of a poet in some ways. And and I think he would want us to consider this. Uh, his final gift to us would be perhaps that he would want us to live life fully and take care of each other. Can you take me back to that first dive to the Titanic that you made in 1987 alongside Paul-Henri Najolet? Can you tell us what that was like, what you were thinking as, as you approached the wreck? Well, PH, uh, as I say, he was a 
good friends for all these years. And our friendship began on the deck of the ship. It was a French government research ship. Uh, it had a $20 million sub, the Nautil. I climbed in, sat beside the pilot and the co-pilot, and surrounded by dials, gauges, switches, and screens. And we were launched over the stern and, and descended through the warm Gulf Stream and then through the cold Labrador current. And I can remember looking out the viewport into this midnight blackness, these pulsing bioluminescent lights, and, and thinking that this is like going to, a, to another planet. Hmm. And then uh, about two, two and a half hours into the dive, we got to the bottom, uh, we landed in, near the bow of the Titanic, and then we began our, our nine-hour dive. The possibility of a catastrophic failure, though, it must always be there. How do you prepare emotionally, psychologically for that? Well, for all of us in the deep ocean community, there is a, a kind of central, essential truth. And that is that the ocean is a lethal environment. And its lethal forces include wind and waves and currents and cold darkness that lasts forever, pressures that bend steel. And the ocean is totally indifferent to human ambition. Her only objective is to find the flaw in your plans and your procedures and your personality. And so with this in mind, everything we do in the deep ocean community is focused on safety. Safety first, second, mm -hmm. and forever. On, on your second dive to the Titanic, you had an issue. The craft became entangled. It was stuck. What happened then? How, did that, how was that resolved? Well, uh, it was... Uh, Final dive, I was co-leading the uh, IMAX Titanic expedition to make a film to do the first science that had been done on the wreck. And on the last dive, I went down with uh, our chief pilot and we landed on the pilot house floor. And we spent some time, you know, thinking and reflecting about the accident and, and having this kind of moment of reverence for the ocean and its forces. And then when it came time to go up, the uh, pilot uh, put power on the thrusters and we went up about a meter or so and stopped. And, whoa, I thought something's happened here. So he tried to m maneuver out and was unsuccessful. And this then became a kind of thick adrenaline moment. But the pilot very calmly called in the second sub and had them take a look at us and tell us what the problem was. Well, the problem was that our left, our port side skid, our landing skid had towed under some wire, some telephone wire that was holding us down. So with gorgeous uh, communications between the two pilots, we moved and maneuvered the sub backwards and forward and kind of got our way out of this and back up to the sunlight. But the genius of all of this is that there were two subs. There was a second sub to be there to help us. So the concept of self-rescue is very important in deep ocean operations. And what about you? Did you despair during that time? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm an alpha coward with a PhD in fear. <laughs> I've spent so much time as a diving physician over the years, treating everything from decompression sickness to gas embolism to blunt force trauma. So I'm acutely aware of how vulnerable we are in the ocean. So yeah, I was having a very thick adrenaline moment. But again, that pilot of ours, Anatoly Segalovich, very calm, very controlled. I had a lot of confidence in him and in the technology and in the 
the other pilot who was helping us, <laughs> the other sub-pilot who was helping us get out of here. The Canadian director, Jim Cameron, built a new craft that he used to explore the very depths of the ocean. How do you know, how does one know that this new technology is also safe? Well, it was Jim who piloted his sub to the New Britain Trench and then to the Mariana Trench. This is back in 2012. But the beauty of that sub is that it took 10 years to develop. He said just recently that it took him three years just working on the pressure hull to make sure that it was safe. Mm. And he worked in concert with these uh, agencies like the Bureau of Shipping and others who certify these subs and help us design safely into it. And unfortunately for this story, this sub was not designed with the collaboration of one of those certifying agencies. Would you have gotten into this Titan submersible craft? Not in a million years, no. When we spoke about 30 years ago, you told me that you could foresee a day when tourism to see the shipwreck of the Titanic would be a reality. Now we have these five deaths. Do you think there's any way Titanic tourism will continue? I can't say, Brent, for sure what's going to happen as a result of this. There will always be this itch to go down and see the Mount Everest of shipwrecks. So I'm going to have to say, knowing human nature, that yes, there may be a way in the future that this happens. But the pause button is on it right now as we assess uh, what had happened. And there's a lot of really hard thinking that needs to be done about ignorance and arrogance and assumptions that have been made. And to be fair, um, I feel in a very small way somehow complicit to the Ocean Gate accident. I didn't know the sub, I didn't know the company, but I just wonder if, if, I, if I paid attention, could I have done something? So that's going to haunt me. And um, has certainly given me a lot of humility for the ocean and, and my relationship with it, and a lot of gratitude for the gifts from the ocean and, and what she has taught me over the years. Dr. Joe McGinnis, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend, P.H. Najolet. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Dr. Joe McGinnis is a Canadian doctor, explorer, and leadership expert. Here is another story we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Today, of the fate of our people is being decided. We need the consolidation of all forces. Russian President Vladimir Putin is vowing to crush what he calls an armed mutiny led by a former ally. Yevgeny Prokoshin, leader of the powerful and feared mercenary outfit the Wagner Group, says his forces have taken control of the southern Russian city of Rostov. Earlier today, Russian military helicopters fired on a convoy of rebel mercenaries who had advanced halfway to Moscow. Prigozhin says he has 25,000 soldiers ready to restore justice to Russia, but denies he is leading a coup. Prigozhin accuses Russian forces of attacking and killing his fighters and bungling the war in Ukraine. In a video yesterday, he said the invasion was unnecessary and unjustified. Security has been stepped up across Russia. The internet has been restricted, and military trucks have been seen on the streets of Moscow. Still to come here on Day 6, summertime, and the reading is easy. Becky Toyne is back with her picks. That's coming up. That real kind of page-turner-ish quality. I left the pre-order option open. Oh, okay, uh, no. Okay. Yes! 
What's that mean? That means we have 78 slices of chocolate cake, 99 french fries, 54 chickens, 38 salads, and 255 sandwiches due up in eight minutes. Oh my gosh, no pressure there. That's a clip from the hit TV series, The Bear. The Bear follows Carmi Berzato, a talented young chef who takes over his brother's sandwich shop in Chicago after his brother's death. The show was a huge hit and super addictive with intense scenes of cooks working under the extreme pressure of a busy kitchen and a demanding head chef. And sometimes it was a little too much. Ooh. I didn't go to the last episode oh, because wow. after that one, my wife and I said, we have to be medicated. <laughs> the tension was so high, it was brilliant. We're like, I, yeah. need, I need a break. Real life chefs have lauded the show for its depiction of life in a professional kitchen. I've lived in this environment, especially when I worked for Gordon Ramsay. Chefs like Top Chef Canada finalist Chris Irving. The bear reveals toxic aspects of the food service industry because you're working late and you're working hard and everybody's incredibly tired. There's no room for polite jokes or sensitivity. The famous saying goes, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Watching the bear feels like you're bubbling up just like an unwashed pot of cream on the stove. A brand new season of The Bear just dropped in the U.S. It will be available in Canada next month on Disney+. Corey Mitz is a reporter and an author who covers labor practices in the food industry. He's also a fan of The Bear. Corey, welcome back to Day 6. Good morning. Before becoming a food reporter, you worked for years in kitchens. Did watching The Bear give you flashbacks? In the way that, you know, writing, reporting about food and restaurants always does, just speaking to people reminds me of that experience. And for me, it's always positive because it reminds me either of wonderful things that uh, help build me into who I am today, but also horrible experiences that I'm just so glad to have such distance from. And, when, and this show certainly shows the, the good along with the hair raising. But why do you think the bear has struck a chord with chefs and restaurant industry insiders? What is it about it that, that, that speaks to them? I think for exactly what you just alluded to, the, the good and the bad, the fact that rather than a sort of lionizing of chef, which we saw for 15 or 20 years, or the sort of critical writing I do about labor exploitation in restaurants, it seemed much more of a nuanced look at this world. And when it came out, I happened to be traveling to two different food restaurant conferences and, and certainly all the chefs were talking about it. And I think it's, they, they saw themselves in it. You know, they saw both the, the perpetuation of that cycle of emotional, psychological abuse uh, exploitation, but also the sort of elation and transcendence that comes both through you know, the cooking of food, the sharing of food, the serving of food, and also, you know, those small moments the show finds to display the importance of actual compassionate mentorship. Yeah, and that juxtaposition of the compassionate against the monstrous is probably one of the reasons why the, the dynamic of the show is so vast and, and successful, because it can be a really intense thing to watch. And there are real pressure cooker scenes. I'm thinking of the one when the orders are coming in for sandwiches and the, the, the kitchen is, is just struggling, and then everybody puts down their aprons and walks out. So the stress levels are sky high. How close is that to what you've seen in real life kitchens? You have to move some reality around to make it happen that all these sort of this, this disparate group of 
uh, uh, restaurant employee archetypes who normally would be found in very different kinds of restaurants, not all in one, mm-hmm. are all there on the same day while someone do- doesn't know how computer works uh, results in all the, you know, the third-party delivery service orders coming in all at once. Yeah. Maybe that's stretching the reality a little bit in terms of the, the plot dynamics, but the feeling, you know, I, anyone who's cooked for a living, I have had the experience certainly of that sound, that of the printer spitting out another order when you were already trying to do the orders that were coming in 40 minutes ago. And you're just, your brain's ability to make order, make sense out of the sequence in which you have to perform your job, which is physical, but mental, it just, it gets overloaded. And you know, what we see is of course the, I think very real world relatable, what happens to people emotionally when we short circuit in that way and how we, um, we lose it and we blow up at each other. But, but you, you alluded earlier to, to the work that you've done exposing atrocious workplace labor standards in professional kitchens. And you, you discuss some of that in your book, the next supper, but it's, it's in a lot of your other writing as well. What is it about this industry that tends to produce toxic workplaces? Well, the quest, for excellence is um, it's fenced in by the limitations of the price you can charge for your product, by which I mean, you know, a, a dentist can work really hard, but ultimately, you know, charge you the whatever it is two, $300 for a visit that they need to charge you to cover for all this expensive stuff. Where in a restaurant you go, if we want to be the best, if you want to achieve at a certain level, you have to perform at a level that requires you to have so many hands producing food that you couldn't possibly pay them all a living wage mm-hmm. and charge what the food is worth. So if you need to have all this food, the kind of food that gets you on your city's top 10 list, that gets you on international lists and wins you awards then you need to have this, you know, this tweezer food that people are fastidiously preparing in tiny little batches and assembling um, with three people working on a plate. And it's just not possible to compensate everybody fairly doing that. So what happens is you convince people that they should want to come in earlier. Now, you don't tell them to come in early, but they end up showing up to three hours early every day because they want to achieve the creative ends of what you're mm-hmm. doing. You just can't pay them what they're worth. Yeah. So, so season two is almost on us. It's, it is on us if you have a VPN. So, but, but I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. So no spoilers here. But we know that this season follows Carmen as he tries to open a restaurant, a different kind of restaurant than the sandwich shop. What do you think should happen in this season to make the storyline feel authentic? I hope, you know, I mean, having covered restaurants and the hospitality, like the, the staffing issues, the labor issues that they've been dealing with mm-hmm. for about eight years now and having this hope that the the pandemic was this opportunity to really rewrite its wiring and then seeing this, this come crashing back down to earth. I would hope that the second season is about, you know, an echo of the first um, on a larger scale wrestling with whether that's a good idea. And if the world needs another fancy restaurant that's competing for titles and accolades, or if what they were doing before uh, was more honest and beneficial to their community. Why do you think we love to watch Kitchens in Chaos? 
I mean, for me, as someone who was, you know, taught in kitchens to clean as I go, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean, keep myself organized, have my mise en place and everything. It's such a release. I think in the way that people enjoy horror movies, but I don't, to watch a kitchen where it's, it's chaos, not only visually that people are making a mess, but that people are angry and tense and resentful and worried about like the, the finances of it. Will we, will we sell enough? All that. It's a real release to sort of go, Oh, let, like let that all play out in fiction in a way that I don't have to worry about in real life. Corey Mintz. Thank you very much for being with us today. It's great to talk to you. My pleasure, Brent. Thank you. Corey Mintz is a food reporter, consultant, and the author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them, and What Comes After. You found Fanny Price unlikable? She sounds pretty unbearable, but I haven't read the book. What? You don't have to have read a book to have an opinion on it. I haven't read the Bible either. What Jane Austen novels have you read? None. I don't read novels. Yeah, so you know who's sitting all by himself at the barbecue? That guy. He doesn't read novels? Yeah. No one wants to talk about the Leafs. And now that it's officially summer, it's the perfect time to pick up a good book. And if you're looking for something new to read, the Day 6 Books columnist has bushels of books to share with you. Becky Toyne joins me now with her latest picks for summer reads. Becky, welcome back. Good to see you. Good morning. Nice to see you. This summer, you've chosen three novels and a work of nonfiction for the guy who doesn't read novels. Uh, But in a nutshell, how would you describe all of the books on your list? Is there something in common between them? Yeah. So the three novels that I've picked are all totally different types of books. I've got um, a more literary novel, a commercial novel, and something that is a straight thriller, but they all have thriller qualities to them. And that's something that we think about a lot in terms of summer reads, that real kind of page turnerish quality. The nonfiction book is a bit different, and that's sort of an anti-airport read. And mm. I'll talk more about that yeah, uh, when, we, when we come to it. We'll get to that. But let's, let's talk about this first one, because it sounds like a real thriller. Burnham Wood by the Booker prize-winning novelist Eleanor Catton. Who or what is Burnham Wood? Burnham Wood is, it's a gardening collective. Mm. The novel's set in New Zealand and Burnham Wood, um, the reference uh, should be familiar to pretty much anybody who's uh, taken English in high school. There's a Macbeth reference in there. Um, and, uh, oh, Burnham- you said the Scottish play. Oh, I'm sorry. Get out of my studio. <laughs> okay, it's all right. Um, so Burnham Wood is it's essentially, it's a gardening collective, but they're really kind of an activist, sort of a guerrilla gardening collective. And what they do in New Zealand is they find unused or underused bits of land and they plant crops there mm-hmm. and try and get away with it and try to borrow things to fertilize the plots and borrow water from people's hoses and so on. So they're doing... Doesn't sound like a page turner, Becky. They're do- yeah, so, okay, it starts as this sort of dirt under the nails story, an environmental novel about okay. uh, and about the relationships between the sort of two women who were in charge of this collective. Bear with me. It's even great at the beginning. Halfway (laughs) through the story, it takes kind of a sharp turn and it becomes a thriller. It becomes an environmental thriller um, into the mix with the sort of dirt under the nails gardening um, hippies um, is thrown a billionaire who has made all his money in surveillance drones, who is clearly in every single letter that is written about him on the page, a total psychopath. And he is kind of thrown in with Burnham Wood. He invests in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. He's allowing them to garden on land, which they think he owns, which he doesn't actually technically quite own 
known yet. And he's also doing some other stuff there that Burnham Wood doesn't know about. And so they sort of get wrapped into all these debates as a collective about, well, should we be taking this guy's money? He's against every single thing that we stand for. But if we take his money, what good can we do? And how Ah. can we further our cause? And how do we have to get into bed with the billionaire to be able to advance our environmental cause? Like I said, the guy's a psychopath. Things do not go well. <laughs> Things um, take a crazy turn. And it's, this is um, such a page turner, such a surprising novel, I thought. And I loved that it. it's set in New Zealand. Um, I loved, you know, the idea of the Macbeth um, reference that Burnham Wood in the story is moving and what that signifies for what's happening within the story and the idea of rolling in sort of the juxtaposing the environment and the surveillance and the hippies and the billionaires. I loved it. It sounds great. And lots of praise for the, the writing in this one. Who do, who do you think Burnham Wood would appeal to? A huge number of people. I mean, Eleanor Catton, she was born in Canada. We claim her as one of our own. This is her third novel. Her novels are all very different. I think she's incredibly talented. Um, her first novel, The Rehearsal, was sort of set in a high school. The Luminaries was this sort of Charles Dickens-esque um, story set in New Zealand. Now this eco-thriller. I think that this is one of those books that will succeed because it checks so many boxes for, for different kinds of readers. Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton, the first First book on the list. So next by a Toronto writer, Harriet Alida Lai. What can you tell us about Let It Destroy You? So Let It Destroy You is a brand new novel. It just came out, but it is also in paperback, so a little bit more portable for your summer reading. Good. This is uh, Harriet Alida Lai's second novel, her third book. And it is set in 1945 when a physicist named August Snow, it's on the eve of his trial at the International Criminal Court. And the story is told in alternating chapters between August Snow and his estranged wife, June. And I'm just going to come out and say it. When I first was interested in this book, and I was very interested I'd heard about this book. I was interested in it for summer reads. I thought, I can't read a book where the characters are called June and August. That's going to drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> what but, happened in July? But then I know. But then I thought, hey, it's a summer read. I can get past it. I'm so glad I did. I adored this book. I read it in two sittings. Um, August and June are based on real people. And the, the novel has been inspired by the letters written between them. But there's an author's note that explains that this is heavily, heavily fictionalized. Mm-hmm. And so August Snow is awaiting his his trial at the International Criminal Court, and he's on trial for inventing a more lethal version of the atomic bomb. The novel takes place ostensibly over the course of just a single evening where he and his estranged wife and their daughter are in hotel rooms. Um, well, he's not in hotel room. He's in custody. She's in a hotel room, and they're sort of awaiting the trial the next morning. But they're also sort of talking to you, the reader, about what has happened in the past, how they met, how their relationship unfolded, and how they got to the point that they're at now. Mm-hmm. And so what the novel is actually doing is exploring really interesting ethical questions about guilt and innocence and when pure intentions, if they have been ultimately used for evil or disastrous consequences can still be considered pure. And so the underlying idea is that this physicist uh, came up with the idea for this new kind of radiation, which was ultimately used for a more lethal atomic bomb. He came up with the idea because his daughter had cancer Mm. and he wanted to cure her. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't create the bomb. He came up with the idea that made it possible. And he had altruistic 
reasons for doing it. But it was patented and other people used it for other methods and he made a lot of money as a result. And then how do we unpack what that means and, and whose fault was it and to what extent was his wife um, uh, complicit because mm. she knew what mm. he was doing also. It sounds um, fascinating. It, so, it's fascinating. And you said you, you read this in two sittings. So can you compare it to something else? It sounds pretty remarkable. Um, so to me, it made me think of novels like The Paris Wife by Paula McLean um, or something like The Gown by Jennifer Robson, both of which are novels that are brilliant and vibrant and are based on true events and true people, but are fictionalized accounts of that. Amazing title too, Let It Destroy You by Harriet Alida Lai. And up next, you have another Canadian author. This is Daniel Kalla and his novel is called Fit to Die. First, what can you tell us about Daniel Kalla? Daniel Keller is a Canadian physician who I guess must have figured out how to never sleep ever because he seems to also manage to churn out a best-selling novel um, almost every year, I think. Um, so he is, uh, you know, he is a doctor by day or I guess also by night. Um, and he has written a number of very popular, very successful um, thrillers, all of which have medical themes mm-hmm. and many of which have quite prescient medical themes. He's written a novel about a pandemic a long time before the one that we just went through. He's written a novel about experimental vaccines, about the opioid crisis. And now in Fit to Die, uh, what he's training his lens on is um, weight loss drugs Mm -hmm. and social media influences. Mm -hmm. And so to anyone who's read uh, his novels before, those familiar characters return, Detective Anson Chen and Dr. Julie Reese, the toxicologist, are back. Um, If you've never read him before, it totally doesn't matter. You can completely pick this up as as a standalone. And the story centers around various uh, healthy people who suddenly start to die and the common link between them is found to be this sort of miracle weight loss drug um, that they're obtaining on the on the dark web which can have incredible results if you take it in the specified very small dose but people get greedy and they look so good and they feel so great and they want to look better Ah. and they want to feel better and they take a little bit more Oh, and then they don't feel so good. Sounds great. Daniel Kalla, Fit to Die is the name of that. So that's three thrillers in the fiction realm. But you now have a nonfiction book for us called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock by Jenny O'Dell. And I'm guessing that this one is about time. But what does Jenny O'Dell write about in Saving Time? So she writes about time. You're right. This book does exactly what it says on the cover. Um, I was drawn to it as a summer read. And it is sort of, as I said at the beginning, it's kind of an anti-airport novel because it, instead of being a sort of thriller that you can just dive into and flip through really quickly, instead of escapism, it's something that helps you think more about yourself and about the moment that you're sitting in and about the time that you have. And um, I'm sure I'm not alone in finding vacation so restorative because while you're on vacation, you you're not a slave to the clock, mm-hmm. you know. You don't spend your whole time thinking, okay, well, you know, kid up, off to school, breakfast, meeting, lunch, rush across town. You know, we're, we're not constantly thinking about time. You get up when you wake up, you eat when you're hungry, you go for a swim when you're hot, yeah. right? And so time becomes so much more freeing and more elastic. And I think we've all experienced different elasticities of time over the last few years as well. Mm -hmm. And so to me, just the concept of this book was really intriguing as something to sort of think about and engage with over the summer. And so essentially in the book, Jenny O'Dell, whose previous um, books include How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy, and she sort of talks about things like the the language that we use. You know, we spend time. We're like the same way that we spend money. Mm -hmm. We're 
are very conscious that time is money. And she sort of traces our current system through which we've just sort of developed to a point where we have a system of exchanging our time for money, for wages. And that's how we organize our lives. And how that looks different to an employer or a factory manager than it does to an employee and how strange it is that we've developed machines to make our jobs easier as people but those machines didn't give us back time because mm -hmm. what we did with the extra time is we just filled it with more work mm -hmm. we didn't say oh i have an automatic washing machine now i can do the crossword while i do my laundry now i do my paid work yeah. or i go and yeah. do the groceries at the same time you know we've just filled we, we, the more time we give ourselves, the more we just fill it with more work. Did it make you think differently about the time that you have to spend this summer with your family and the other things that are important in your life? I think not even specific to the summer. It just made me be more aware of thinking about time and slowing down. I mean, at the very beginning of the book, Jenny O'Dell talks about a period during lockdown when she was in her kitchen and she was sort of watching some moss grow on the windowsill. Mm -hmm. And the the slow passage of time during which the, the moss was growing, but how life goes on, right? And, and those kinds of meditative thoughts about being present in time um, and organizing your time differently. And I think it's just, like I said, it's an alternative to the airport novel um, to instead of escapism through your reading this summer, complete opposite. And I told the court that I'm wrong to in prison. Mr. He was one small man in a giant wheel caught. Well, I do wish to say that it's official that I'm wrongfully imprisoned right now. Uncover, Season 7, Dead Wrong. I asked him if he killed people. He said yes, and I'd be next. Available on CBC Listen and wherever you get your podcasts sort of meditating on being really present in your time and thinking about how you spend your time, how you pass your time. Let's pass our time instead of spending our time like it's money. Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock by Jenny O'Dell. And in this super segmented portion of our program, we're now out of time, but I want to wish you a very happy summer and thank you for sharing these books with us today. Happy summer. Becky Toyne is our Day 6 Books columnist. You can find all of her summer reads on our website at cbc.ca slash Day 6. Still to come on Day 6, no Canadian dates for Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, but the T-Swift dance parties are here to save the day. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You may listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. It's an honor for me to be here before you, and I truly thank you for taking the time to learn about transgender students in Kentucky before you take a vote that'll affect a lot of kids like me. It's not the easiest thing in the world for me to be here talking to you about where I go to the bathroom. To be honest, it's pretty embarrassing. That's Henry Berg Brousseau speaking to the Kentucky State Senate in 2015. Henry was 16 at the time. He'd come out as transgender nearly two years earlier, and he was speaking about a bill that would ban transgender kids from choosing which bathroom they use at school. After his speech, many senators thanked Henry and said they learned a lot from him, and then minutes later, they passed the bill anyway. After that, his mother decided to run for office. Karen Berg is a radiologist by trade. In 2020, she ran for state senate, and she won. 
Henry helped run her campaign. Since then, state legislatures across the country have passed a wave of legislation targeting transgender people. More than 550 of them have been introduced just this year, and it's only June. In March, Kentucky passed one of the strictest anti-trans laws in the United States. It prohibits conversations about gender identity in schools. It permits teachers to refuse to use a student's preferred pronouns, and it bans all gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth. In December, Henry Berg Brousseau died by suicide, and his mother, Senator Karen Berg, is continuing to fight for transgender rights. You had time to understand the science. You had time to get yourself educated on this subject. This is absolute, willful, intentional hate. Senator Karen Berg, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, sir. Thank you very much for having me here. You didn't set out to be a politician. Why did you run for office? (laughs) No, I actually, you know, originally when I was a young, young kid, I wanted to be a judge. I wanted to be the first female Supreme Court justice of the United States. Um, obviously, I didn't make that. But I, um, I was actually pre-law. And um, I was told by a group of lawyers, under no circumstances should you do this. So I went back oh and goodness. went to medical school instead. Because I loved medicine. And I still love medicine. But many years later, I thought, you know, Karen, um, you can and you should, because the people that are making decisions here in this state aren't any more qualified to do so than you are. And that's when I decided um, I was going to go ahead and run. So far this year, it's not just your state, because so far this year, there've been 558 anti-trans bills tabled in the United States. What is it about this particular moment that some people have latched on to fighting against the transgender population in general, and specifically against trans kids? Well, there's actually, I mean, there's a history to this. Uh, a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom got together, I think it was 1994. And they are well-funded, and they are Christian nationalists, and they have a lot of influence not only over court positions, over, you know, judges. They've had mm-hmm. a lot of influence over judgeships. And now they're working on the legislators. And they bring pre-written legislation along with all the people you need to testify and everything you want. So you don't, honestly, as a legislator, you don't have to do any work. You file the bill that they hand you. And then the committee meeting gets held and you listen to the speakers that they bring in out of town, Mm -hmm. they fund, and then you go to town. And this is, this is really what's happened, sir. But then there's your voice. I mean, you've decided to speak out against the experts that they bring in and, and you have a personal experience to share that is evidence of the harm that some of this legislation can bring. And when you speak, some of your colleagues have actually uh, said that they've learned from your words and they thanked you for for speaking, but then they vote for these bills anyway. So how do you keep going back? How do you keep doing it? Well, because you still have faith. You you don't give up hope. If you give up hope, if you quit working, if you quit, then, then then you've lost. You have, there's no way to succeed if you're not willing to keep fighting. 
And if people don't know, mm-hmm. like my legislators, they don't know how to look at research and say, oh, is this good research and, and valid? It's not the world they come from. So they are very easily misled. And the truth is, this issue has stuck with voters. Mm-hmm. What didn't work with voters was the bathroom issue. North Carolina tried to do that. Right. Everybody got upset. It went away. But transgender women playing against women in sports, that issue has hit a national tone that now they think, oh, we're winning on this. Let's take it further. Let's take it further and see if we can't get people to vote for us on on stopping actual medical care for these kids. Yes. Yes. And that's what they're trying to do. In some cases, criminalizing parents who provide that care or who make that care available. But 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 your message is also that while you're working out the political aspects and dimensions of this, there are kids who are endangered by the legislation that they're bringing in. There is, as you know, uh, there is a hashtag, trans kids deserve to live. Right. So w- w- how do you not make this personal? How can you well, sir, sit there is, with your loss and listen to that? It's horrendously personal. I mean, it's personal for me because I'm the mother of a trans child. I'm also a physician and I believe in healthcare and medicine. And to watch both of them be so openly, flagrantly attacked by elected politicians. I mean, I understand why people say, don't vote, don't engage, just ignore the whole thing. But I can't do that. It's too important. When Henry first came out to you, I think, I believe he was 14. What was your reaction? Were you worried for him? Oh my God. I was so worried. I mean, I can remember my first thought to myself was, oh my God, this child's life is already hard. This is only going to make it harder. Now, obviously, he had already gone through puberty by the time he told me yes. and his father. So there was no way for him to have been put on puberty blockers before he went through female puberty. But I keep thinking, if we had been able to, if we'd had that choice, all of that constant daily trauma that Henry faced, just trying so hard to be accepted and to fit in and to belong and never being allowed to, all of that could have been avoided. None of that had to happen. What do you make of the defense that's often brought up that these bills are about protecting children, protecting children in sport, protecting children from gender-affirming care? Basically, every law that we passed is intentionally designed to hurt trans children. I mean, we passed a law that you do not have to use the pronouns of their choice. Mm -hmm. Now, and that means if I, as a mother, have a trans child and my child goes to a therapist 
and a psychiatrist and a primary care physician. And all three of them write notes that this child has gender dysphoria and this child is transgender. Please use the preferred pronouns because it will decrease suicidality by up to 70%. Mm-hmm. And that teacher could just say, nah, don't feel like it. Imagine if you had a child who was diabetic and a note from your doctor that my child's blood glucose level needs to be monitored during the day. And the teacher just said, nah, not going to do that. I mean, it's not safe to send your child to school without that. So they made that legal. And then to stop health care for these children, delaying the onset of puberty and or going through the correct puberty as opposed to the puberty that's going to make you want to kill yourself, that's illegal. It, it, it's nonsensical. I read that Henry liked to quote a line from Hamilton, the musical, I'm not throwing away my shot. He had that tattooed on his arm. Have you taken yeah. that on for him? Are you, are you thinking that when you're sitting in the legislature listening to some of the debate? You know, sir, the truth is my child, my child is dead. But I have an obligation. I have an obligation to those children and their families out there who are still living to try to make this right for them. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that other children, other families don't have to go through the heartbreak that my family's been through. It, it's not necessary. It doesn't have to be this way. And all it takes, all it takes to avoid it is tolerance. Nothing more than treating somebody else with respect. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to want to be like them. You don't have to emulate them in any way, shape, or form. But you have to tolerate people being different than you are. Otherwise, we can't live together as a society. It's going to be impossible. This is basic respect we're asking for. Just basic human respect. This, this is a dark time for transgender people. And obviously it's been, a, it's been a devastating time for your family. But are you hearing from the community anything right now that gives you hope? Oh, yes. I have absolute hope, sir. I have absolute hope. Because, you know, many, many people say this is a desperate gasp of a dying generation and that the the younger generations will be more inclusive and more open and less judgmental. And um, I see that and I believe in that. And I honestly believe in the goodness of human beings. I think most people want to treat other people with dignity and respect, just like they want to be treated. It's the core of every religion. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a basic precept of how do you live with other people. This is going to get fixed. 
I have no doubt. Karen Berg, thank you for being with us. Sir, thank you very much for asking me to join you. Karen Berg is a state senator in Kentucky. Taylor Swift announced a new slate of concerts in her Eras tour this week. There are still no confirmed Canadian dates. I know, cruel summer indeed. But a few Taylor Swift superfans have the perfect way to shake it off. Miri Macon and Victoria Morton are two of the co-founders of T-Swift Dance Parties, which are pretty much exactly what they sound like. Dance Parties, where the DJ spins Taylor and only Taylor. Miri and Victoria have been holding the events in cities across Canada. The proceeds go to charity. I spoke to them last December. Here's part of our conversation. Victoria, describe one of these parties to us. What do they look like? What does it feel like to be there? Oh, man. It, it's, it's the kind of thing that you really have to see to fully, fully understand or hear to fully understand it. But imagine the most energetic room you could imagine all blasting the same song, all singing every single lyric. It's just an absolute release of energy and kindness and positivity. And it's just a really, really magical environment. How much of that magic comes from dancing and how much of it comes from singing, Miri? Ooh, I'd say it's a real 50-50 split. People feel so much for Taylor Swift songs. And so they get to come to these parties and really just live out the main character moment in their own story. Huh. And was that feeling something that you each had in, in, in your own hearts when you were listening to the songs before any of these dance parties materialized? Oh, definitely. I think we've all been singing these songs alone in our bedroom for over a decade. So it's so exciting to get <laughs> to come to a, a space and do that all together. What happens when the 10-minute version of All Too Well comes on? This is a song <laughs> that reaches into a person's soul. Can you describe what's going on in the dance floor at that moment? It is like nothing you've ever seen, honestly. <laughs> the amount of emotional intensity in that song. There was one event where the music sort of cut out a little bit during the song, and people oh, no. kept singing every single lyric. <laughs> And this is not yeah. a like little jingle that you know you get in your head and you can't forget. This is a ten. No, it's a journey, poetic <laughs> journey that everyone participates in, and it's incredible. And so we've actually like, turned off the music um, at some events mid-song intentionally because we know that everyone's going to know every single lyric. When I look at the TikTok videos of the crowds of people at your dance parties, there's there's proof that there's a community there for people who love this music. Victoria, what does that community mean? Who's part of it? How feminine is it? And why is it important to the people who are there? It's certainly a female-centric or a woman-centric event. Like there's, I'd say 95% of every event is predominantly women. And something that's really special about that is, is that often when people come to our events, they reply to us and send us notes after saying, thank you for putting that on. I've never felt so safe or comfortable in a club. Nobody's flexing and trying to look cool. Taylor has a wonderful quote about um, embracing cringe. And I think in this day and age, we like to think of cringe <laughs> as, you know, it's not cool to care about stuff. It's not cool to get excited. And Taylor is the absolute no. opposite of that. It's the coolest thing in the world to be so excited that you come and scream every word and um, you feel safe doing it. Well, it sounds like the kind of event that Taylor Swift herself might like to be a part of. And I know that she was in Canada at the beginning of September what would you did you invite her to one of your events and what would you do if she showed up 
We tried to. We 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 actually rented a <laughs> bar across the street from the Tiff Bell Lightbox and threw a dance party in the street, kind of spilling out into the street. I believe uh, we did have a sign out front saying Taylor Swift drinks for free. So we were hoping she'd stop <laughs> in for a margarita, we but was there. it didn't happen. <laughs> Miri and Victoria, nice to meet you. You as well. You too. Miri Macon and Victoria Morton, two of the co-founders of T-Swift Dance Parties. I spoke to them last December. Unlike T-Swift herself, they're planning a cross-Canada tour this summer. from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. Guess the story that links the riffs. You could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. I am a robot. Naked and alone. Sent from the future to build a new home. The one and only Edward Bear with Last Song, George Harrison and When We Was Fab, and Tenacious D with Robot. Lucas Fowler of Vancouver guessed the headline we're looking for. Paul McCartney says the Beatles will release a final record using John Lennon's voice via an AI assist. Congratulations, Lucas. A D6 tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. And you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfu Tedesa. Our intern is Rihanna Lim. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambry. Bonne fête nationale. Happy Pride. It's seven days to Canada Day, two days till Toronto gets a new mayor, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. You said the Scottish play. Get out of my studio. (laughs) For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.